Paul Schulte joining us from his cruise. Why are we doing this today, Paul? I am I'm just leaving Palma de Mallorca and we're off to Ibiza tomorrow and then Cartagena and Valencia and then back to Barcelona. Very to end nice, the cruise. Right? I, I got stuck in a cruise from hell in Singapore where we were going to have a Delta variant cruise and it was all canceled and they said we can go on the cruise if we eat our meals in the cabin and all of us just like said no way Jose and so we just got a credit so I had to use it or lose it so I just popped on this thing. It's my first real cruise I've ever been on and it's like it's fun. It's okay. It's fun. It's fun. You're gall- gallivanting around Whatever. the Mediterranean. Yeah, I've been to a very beautiful set and Toulon. People got to check out Toulon. It's a very beautiful uh, shore town next near Marseille. Very, very beautiful. And then, of course, uh, Palma. And we went to also Corsica. Corsica is a place you got to go and see. Corsica is a really beautiful town. It's the uh, birthplace of Napoleon. A very beautiful little town. Uh, These are the kinds of towns that you can get a very reasonable lifestyle. And think about retirement, you know, because these are gorgeous, gorgeous places. You know, Corsica, and, was, about, and, and we. I was going to say, Courtney and I talk about doing the throwing it all in and moving to Sicily about uh, once every two or three weeks. <laughs> like, you know, it's great. Go, go, go try Corsica. Go try Corsica and uh, Toulon. And, you know, these are places on the French coast, some of the islands, really, really beautiful, beautiful scuba diving, gorgeous, like completely blue, you know, crystal blue, clear blue ocean in Corsica. Rich history, very beautiful shoreline, nice beaches, very pretty. These are the places we got to go peck around. You're having more fun than SoftBank's having. You're having more fun than Tiger Global's having. You're having a lot more fun than a lot of people. I know, yeah. Paul, Paul, is it the death death of venture capital? There was an article that I saw today. Musser, what Musser announces, what a set eleven billion dollar loss. Tiger Global's you know, down seventeen was down seventeen billion dollars in Q one. Is this the death? Are we are we just seeing an adjustment, or is there something much more structural here? Yeah, I've been giving this a lot of thought the last few days, just sort of roaming around the ocean and just looking at the water. There's a lot of young, like graduate students and college students, hanging around the ship, and we just start talking and. I think there's a phrase that we always use, and, and it's when, when you, you cut interest rates or you, you start stimulating an economy, you're, you're saying you're borrowing from the future, right? You're, you're bringing consumption forward. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, here's what I think just happened in the last 10 years. In the last 10 years, the voracious appetite for everything, assets, consumption, high-end consumption, super yachts, houses everywhere, right? We have basically brought forward spending for a generation. And and this is where you get extended, prolonged downturns. When you have pulled, when you pushed forward so much trillions of dollars of spending from leverage in terms of leveraged assets in homes, leveraged purchases for leisure, for yachts, for jets, for second, third, fourth vacation homes. And all the while doing this, essentially a lot of that wealth, that that, that optioned wealth, right, from people who had options uh, in their companies, a lot of that was also brought forward because of leverage for stock uh, buybacks, right, and dividends, right? And we had very little capex. And so, so I think what's happening, Paul, right now is we're seeing this burst of demand post-COVID. And we've had no capital expenditure because people just didn't think they needed to have any. And by the way, 
you know, it was more tax efficient to pay people out by way of stock buybacks than by capital gains. And what you have is a world where you have very inflated stock prices, underdeveloped capital infrastructure, and a dividend stream that was partially funded with leverage. Mm. And the unwind of that has a lot of consequences. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. And so I think we are in a, a long-term extended period of adjustment from underdevelopment in, in infrastructure, excessive stock buybacks, which have inflated stock prices and partially funded dividends with, with leverage. And so much, so much, you know, consumption, Paul, that's been pushed forward. And so I, I fear for what's going to cause solid GDP growth besides inflation, what's going to cause, you know, stock price momentum. And so I think that we're looking at, at the very least, we're looking at a change in leadership. At worst, we are looking at a generational, right, pulling forward of demand for the last decade using trillions of dollars of leverage, basically semi-funded from the Fed. Yeah, Paul, I think what you've eloquently described is, again, I, I, I despise the phrase stagflation because you can use it in many different But you've described the practicalities of stagflation just then. And I, I get, the good example I'll give you is obviously, you know, my climate, my climate focus is something which it's, this is the best example I can give you is that no one denies in the climate space, whether that's auto companies, mining companies, et cetera, about the EV revolution and the demand opportunities around the transformation from the combustion engine to, to, the, um, to the electric vehicle. The consensus tends to be that we need something around $150 billion of CapEx extraction to give us the copper and nickel and lithium and cobalt, and et cetera, et cetera, that we need to transition this revolution from the combustion engine to the electric vehicle. And we're currently generating around 75 to $80 billion. So we're now running nowhere near the capex that we need to be able to generate the number of vehicles that are required. Not even, you know, probably not even to forget demand, but just to get to net, to push it toward a path of net zero by 2050. The reason that doesn't happen is clearly someone at the top end of BHP, Rio, Anglo, Freeport, pick your major global mining companies, believes even with these incredible fundamental opportunities that exist, that the financial engineering benefits of share buybacks, dividend, special dividends, all this stuff, is actually better for the company in the shorter to medium term than spending tens of billions of dollars on, on CapEx. So in the same breath in their Q4 last year earnings release, BHP, BHP announced that they were very surprised by the high prices for most metals that they they dealt with and yet announced a special dividend because mm -hmm. they didn't want to put that money into those high-priced commodities that are their bread and butter. That sums it up perfectly to me, right? So there is this, I think what you've said is that there remains a conflict and the mining industry is a great example of this, but I think financial services is another one, where there's a conflict between financial engineering to juice the share price because that's what gets me paid near term, right? And the long-term mm -hmm. long growth prospects, be that in rebuilding the electricity grid, electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a good example of exactly what I'm talking about. And even in China, I was looking at a couple of companies in China, and, and in China, it's even worse, where some of the leverage that these companies are building up 
is is using almost 100% of the leverage is being used to pay out dividends. And so so we've had this this spectacular leverage boom of I'm going to just say off the top of my head I'm pretty sure I'm right it's you know it, it, the 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 covid added you know about 40 to 45 trillion dollars of debt to the world's debt stock and so I think we're up at like 370 you know trillion dollars which is like some multiple of global GDP, which global GDP about now would be at like maybe 80 or 85. Yeah, so, so, we're looking so at, you're roughly just under 5x, 500 times. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so I'm completely convinced that the Fed and the Bank of England and the ECB have been having secret meetings saying the only way out we're going to get is by having you know, their languages a level of inflation, which is potentially somewhat higher than our 2% level. That's their public. The private is goose this thing, baby, pedal to the metal, because we got to get like five, seven percent inflation in order for us to bring down these debt levels relative to GDP, because that's what that's what it's all about. And then on the other hand, you have to raise up, raise your, your revenue levels for taxation, your tax revenues. And, and you do that through inflation as well. Now, the guys who did not get the message, they weren't in on the meeting that they didn't get the memorandum. It was Japan. <laughs> now, Bank of Japan has not had inflation in like 20 years. And so Japan wouldn't know that the whites of the eyes of inflation if it smacked them in the face. And so Japan's like, wait a minute here, you got, we, we got this thing called inflation. We don't know what to do here because all we do is jack up one and a half percent of GDP deficits, spread it around the country, build Olympic swimming pools in every single village in the whole goddamn country. And we don't know how to raise rates and we don't know how to shrink the balance sheet of the Bank of Japan. All we've been doing is keeping nominal rates close to zero, uh, real growth close to zero, and therefore real rates are manageable. And they've been managing this weird dynamic where nominal and real rates and and and, and nominal and real growth are, are basically more or less plus or minus one, one to minus one. Mm. And, and so if Japan doesn't get the memo about you know, quantitative tightening and raising interest rates, then the yen just goes poof. And that was a very leveraged trade, right? Yeah, man, it's funny. I was chatting, chatting to macro people about no one's caught dollar yet as a move. Because, because again, we, you and I talk about this a lot, that the, the, skill set, the skill sets that existed to look at Japan just don't exist, right? Because, again, if you're a young analyst, you don't, no one's looked at Japan. I mean, so you know, if even like older macro guys that you and I know very, very well, no one's caught dollar yet. No one's, no one's, no one's seen this move. Well, no, no, I, I think that's right. I think that's a good point. But I would be more specific. I would say no one knows how to look at Japan inflation. <laughs> what does Japan with inflation look like? We haven't had to ask that question for twenty years, and now we have to ask that question: What does Japan look like with inflation? Because guess what? A nominal rate's at 0.5 which is where they've been for 15 years, right? America's only been at 0.5 for like, whatever, three years. Japan's been there for almost a generation. If inflation is going to go to three you know, percent or something like that, all the math of the Japanese economy is wrong, right? And by the way, that, that's a really bullish sign for you know, Japanese property. That that could be one of the the wake the fi- finally the, the wake up for a Japanese property that's been in a in a in a twenty year downturn. So I, I'm just going to throw that out as as as. Uh-huh. I was going to say that is that's that's all completely valid, but I do think you know a debate that still has to be had. Admittedly, I I think that I want to I want to refresh the debate and not sound like the 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 beaten broken deflationist that I am at my core. 
you know, obviously the, the Japanese are fighting this because they do believe it's transitory. And the Japanese are the great example of, of demographic deflation and the issues around, around that. Is there still any debate to be had about the transitory nature of this? Is this, I wrote, I wrote on the weekend, Paul, that this notion that somehow the Fed is going to just drive rates higher until they crush inflation and economy be damned, I just don't buy into that. I think that the Fed is smart enough to know that there are elements of demand-side inflation and elements of supply-side inflation, and they can control the demand side. And once you get an economy into recession, there's nothing they can do about the supply side of things. Do we need to be having truly about that some of this stuff, the demand side in particular, could be transitory? Well, I mean, like I said, what what has caused this inflation is we have we have a, a workable, functioning banking system. The banking system in, the, in America is in is in good to great shape, and I've been saying that for many many years. And the labor market is more aggressive than it's been in seventy years, eight, maybe even ninety years. So we have an extremely aggressive, agitated labor market who is either demanding $20, $25 an hour, they're not going to tolerate $7 an hour anymore. That's just, that's just been slave wages for, for you know, decades and, and totally inexcusable. And of course, all these benefits have been taken away. And you basically have a walking wounded, tens, literally probably 15 million Americans walking wounded. They don't have health care. They don't have uh, any vacation. They don't have any um, benefits. They, they have, they, they're burned out and they've blown up and they're addicted whether it's alcohol or painkillers from chronic you know, problems with their bodies because they work themselves to, to de- halfway to death, the, the, the labor market is, is, is becoming uh, very aggressive and agitated. And, and, and we're seeing wages uh, that are going to continue to go up, not down. And, and, and the wage growth is, this, is, is one of the essential parts of inflation along with credit growth. So credit growth plus wage growth gives you inflation, right? And there's a lot of dynamics about why that happens and so forth. But I'm not, I'm not that convinced that this is transitory. And you and I have a, have a similar client. And, and I think that even their view may be that, that you have maybe 3% inflation next year. But you're looking at whatever it was, 3% this year, last year. Nine percent this year, three percent, you know, next year. Nine plus three plus three—that's fifteen, right? And, and that gets you uh, uh, to a new level of inflation that that starts to become built in, right? And and so I, I just don't particularly buy when you, that particularly when you just don't wait, you've got fifteen percent wage, you haven't got fifteen percent real wage growth in that mix, right? That's that's really so. Yeah, that's right. And so. Yeah, so wage growth is probably right now. By the way, wage growth is the highest in like 30 years. Wage growth is running about 6% right now. You've still got negative real wage growth in the context of inflation where we are today. The average worker is still behind the curve. And falling behind, but don't go down that Ayn Rand, you know, idiotic argument. Well, then they shouldn't have asked for a wage growth, you know, a wage. You mean like the, uh, have you, have that you followed, me bananas. Have you yeah. followed the, um, the head of the Bank of England? Who, after doing the ten percent weight inflation, said said something to the effect of paraphrase: "It'd be unpatriotic to ask for a rate a wage hike now." That coming from a man who makes three hundred thousand pounds a year, right? I mean, I know what a, what a how, how fucking time yeah, depth can you? How and then, and then I know, I know, I know. It's so true. How funny! And then, and then on top of that, I believe I believe it was he who said either today or yesterday. It was somebody in the Bank of England yesterday. I think it was basically said. 
and this is where, again, I, I also disagree with, with the transitory nature of inflation. We are going to have a really, really serious food inflation problem by October if this war continues, and it looks like it's going to, in Ukraine, among many other dynamics that are, that are occurring in the global economy. Food inflation is going to be higher, higher in the, by the fall than it is right now. And this is going to create more violence in the world, especially in the frontier world. And that's why I'm so bearish on the frontier markets in Africa, because I think we're just going to get a hell of a lot more violence. Food prices. Yeah, the most telling piece of news mm-hmm. for me out this week was the Indian ban of, of wheat exports. I think that was incredibly... I think that was yeah, incredible. exactly. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so, so what's happening is that 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 inflation is is aggravated by countries who, because they're afraid of higher prices, they begin to hoard. And so, countries are behaving like people. So you saw Indonesia hoarding palm oil. So Indonesia is now banning palm oil, and India is banning wheat. And one of the other countries, one of the other big exporters, banned banned it as well. And so, so increasingly. These prices are going to be aggravated by countries that are hoarding their commodity staples. And you're going to see this in Africa as well, because Africa's got a very serious water problem. And yams are a very big part of the staples of the, a lot of the African countries in, in the way that rice is for Asia. Yams are, and yams are, are going to start being hoarded. And, and so I think we're going to, and I think you're probably going to see Vietnam, I suspect, begin to say, you know what, maybe we need some more of this rice. We don't want to be caught out. And so Vietnam may start to say we're going to pull back or ban exports of rice. That happened during the 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 the, the, the food inflation issue back in 2007. Vietnam did that, and so yeah, so so I think that the hoarding of food products is going to aggravate food inflation going into the fall. So 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 this is something we have to watch. And the other side, the adding to that is the fact that oil prices are back above 110 dollars a barrel for someone who I think that. The rates, the rates have peaked for the cycle and the like. They're going to really struggle to go down if oil is going to remain elevated because of supply side concerns out of Ukraine. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I think you're right. But one of the clients I was talking to last week, I mean, I, I think that, again, the Fed is all, it's a magic act. You have a magic act and then you have a beautiful assistant who's, going to, who's the distraction from the trick. And the Fed's got to keep a distraction. And that's the Fed meetings and the Fed minutes. And then there's what the Fed's really doing. And this was told to me by a, a veteran IMF, 25-year veteran, who was the liaison to central banks from the IMF. And, and he said, just pay attention. Don't pay attention to the beautiful assistant. Pay attention to what the Fed is doing. And, and I think what they're saying is, and what their credibility is is counting on, is being super aggressive with uh, rate hikes, maybe even into September. But I think behind the scenes, they're saying, holy crap, the global economy is petering out. We're looking at a recession by the fourth quarter. Housing prices are cracking. Credit is really slowing down. Do we really, and if we start to quantitatively, this is going to really knock, no, but Paul, listen to this, listen carefully. The number I just saw was $7.4 trillion of market cap was wiped off of NASDAQ. And why? We have had 75 basis points of rate increases and zero zero reduction in quantitative easing. Yeah. Let me repeat that again. We have had 75 basis points increase in interest rates and zero quantitative tightening, zero. And we have wiped out $7.4 trillion in market cap off of NASDAQ, not to mention bonds and other equity markets, equity exchanges. And so I'm telling you right now, if we have quantitative tapering and want to get back to 2020 levels, 
housing prices are going to go down by half. And that's just not going to happen. We, the feds, the, 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 right, this is, this is not on the cards. This is not, right, the, the, uh, the, uh, this is like a violation of national security. It's a violation of civil, of civil uh, discord. It's a violation. We're gonna, we'll have a civil war if you have that. And so the, the Fed is absolutely kidding itself if they're going to go try to sh- shrink the uh, Fed balance sheet by half. And so Powell is being, the beautiful assistant is, look how disciplined we are. Look how we read Ayn Rand books. We can be really, we can be very mean when we want to, because that's what we're supposed to do. But, but in fact, we've had seventy-five basis points of rate hikes, and we've had. I was looking at that. I think that equates to around ten billion dollars of market cap per basis point, <laughs> right? Yeah, you it's know, funny, mate. So uh, Powell's, in terms of Powell's, just, cap. Powell's talk just—I uh, know he was speaking as we started. And what did you say? So Powell emphasized if it involves moving past broadly understood levels of neutral, which is what, two and a half to three, we won't hesitate to do that. The central bank leader told the Wall Street Journal in a live stream interview. We will go into, we feel, at a place where we can say financial conditions are at an appropriate place. We will see inflation coming down. If that's implying going past neutral, that, that implies rates that are higher than what is implied by the current by the current terminal rate of above 3%, according to what he said today. No, it isn't. Paul, it's not. If inflation's 9% and the 60-year average of real interest rates is 3 guess what? That means like nominal rates of, oh, wow, huh. Well, well funnily enough, so funnily uh, enough, Paul, right. um, Jim Leitner was saying recently in a podcast I was listening to that the Taylor rule, and you look up the Taylor rule on Bloomberg, the Taylor rule is currently implying an 8%, an 8% cash rate. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you're looking at something between like six and, and ten. <laughs> and so even if the Fed like ratches it up 25, the Fed's going to be behind the eight ball for many, many, many quarters to come. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, the Federal Reserve is in the, the business of creating a steep yield curve and having the back of bank balance sheets. Let's just get over this once and for all and agree with that statement, because I've looked at banks for 15 years. This is what central banks do. They protect the balance sheet of the banking system. The central banks are essentially owned by the banks. And in order to do that, you got to have a steep yield curve and you got to have some sort of uh, inflationary headwind in order for bank balance sheets to function. And you have to be, and, and in order for credit to function. When you have deflation, like Japan, right, you destroy your banking system. Deflation destroys banking systems, right? And so, so I think this is exactly what ECB and the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve have wanted. It's a little more, it's a teeny bit more than they than, than they than they wanted. The Russian, the Ukrainian war has aggravated the problem by I, I would say, I'm gonna guess it probably accounts for two and a half or three percent of the nine percent right now. I would say I feel confident saying, but the number is still high, that the inflation numbers are still high. And I, I just don't believe they're gonna yeah, come up sure. come up. Yeah, right. For food and oil. I just don't think the Ukraine and Russia are going to come to any sort of peace agreement anytime soon. And besides, Ukraine's winning. And so why should they go to the table? But in the meantime, what I did with my clients uh, in the last week or so is I went through a lot of these stocks. And, you know, I, I think what we have to go back on is sort of looking at technicals in terms of giving a sense of where we are. And I think so many of these stocks that I've been warning about, you know, that, that for like I've been kind of a broken record for many weeks now that a lot of these uh, head and shoulders formations look so hideous and awful. And, and we're getting sort of that, that right side blip right now on, on so many of these stocks, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, NVIDIA, AstraZeneca, Cisco, Adobe, Honeywell, 
Starbucks, Netflix, and and then the ones that that I said watch out because if they break certain levels, it's problematic. Apple, Tesla, Costco, Pepsi, ADP, those have all those have all broken through some of these levels. And then there's quite a few stocks that have already like just they've already had the living hell kicked out of them. One of them, you'll laugh. Today, I was reading about Kathy Woods finally selling her position in C after it's gone down 80%. And th- th- that's a really interesting company. So I think C is probably a really interesting company to own right now, now that Kathy uh, Woods is puking out her last holdings at 80% down. Qualcomm, Amgen, PayPal, Mondelez, Baidu, Moderna. These are the kind of stocks that look like they're sort of They've already gasped and choked and spittled and 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 they've had their legs chopped off already. And so biotech is back to 2015 levels, as correct. Exactly, exactly. That's right. Exactly. So yeah, you you yeah. So Amgen and Moderna, they've all been you know, vomited out by everybody pretty much. And then of course you have the banks, right? The banks never had that rally, so the banks are trading. The banks have just been kind of slowly going up for for several years, and so they don't have that extreme. That, that extreme overvaluation that a lot of the tech has. And so I like that trade of tech versus financials convergence. I think that's a, a very interesting one to still be looking at. And so that, that's kind of what I've been thinking about recently, talking to some clients last week in London. Again, I think that it's been funny to watch, Paul, in the last like four days where people say, oh, that's it. The downturn is over with the rally starting. You better not be sure. Look at the 2001 to 2003 NASDAQ. The NASDAQ went down for three years when it crashed. It went down for three years and had like 11, 11 really impressive rallies. But it ended down much, much lower after three years when it started its, its, its downturn in 2000. And so let's just not be naive here to think that these stock market corrections um, happen only after four months. You and I have been through so many of these things. These things take between... Sort of, sort of a year of sort of like dry heaves, and then you get really super like throwing up, and then you get just the terrible sickness that can last for another year, year and a half. And yeah, so we, could be, we, could be we just got to be careful about jumping in. Tell me about yeah. the rest of the week. Tell me the rest of the week, man. You're on a cruise, so please tell me you're having some fun. Well, yeah, no, there's lots of fun and lots of exercise, and then we're scuba diving in, in, in Corsica and uh, kayaking in Set, which is a beautiful canal town. And I really like Toulon. I could go back there. Uh, Toulon's very livable. I'm sure it's very inexpensive. Uh, Palma de Mallorca, I think, is very overbuilt. It, it's it's uh, it's. I, I, I'm not a fan. We're heading to Ibiza and then to southern Spain, Valencia, and you're going to turn uh, back to the clock in Ibiza, Paul. No, that that's no, my four, no, days, four, um, no five no five no trips to pass through amnesia. I can't do that. I would be dead. If I did the things I did in the 90s right now, I would be dead within 12 hours. Yeah. I'm not allowed back to Ibiza. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I have a fantastic trip. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah. Okay. See you. Bye, mate.